are here in the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate, London for episode 53 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you EOS and IOTA come under scrutiny, Solaris Bank launches a blockchain factory, and is Facebook going to acquire Coinbase, Facecoin, Coinbook? Who knows? But I'm not alone today. I'm joined by my co-host, Sarah Feenan. How are you today, Sarah? Very well, thank you, Sarah. How are you today, Sarah? Oh, this is going to be brilliant. Um, <laughs> and I'm also joined by the wonderful Mark Humar from Luno. How are you today? Hi, good to see you again. I'm great. So before we get started, I just want to say a quick word about our sponsors. Today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by R3. R3 is working with over 200 financial institutions, regulators, trade associations, professional services firms and technology companies to develop on Corda, its open source blockchain platform designed specifically for businesses. Corda is the outcome of over two years of intense research and development by R3 and its members. It meets the highest standards of the financial services industry, yet is applicable to any commercial scenario. It records, manages and executes institutions' financial agreements in perfect synchrony with their peers, creating a world of frictionless commerce. And it's open source. Corda, it's blockchain for every business in every industry business. Head over to r3.com to find out more. So our first story today comes from tokeneconomy.co and the story of the title is hash55, thank you, IOTA. So IOTA took a snapshot of their Tangle, which is, as far as I understand it, the underlying software it operates on or the equivalent to its blockchain, if you like. And it took the liberty, um, having done so, to wipe out coins from users who were at risk, at risk is undefined, given a bug in IOTA's code. Those users would have had to go through a recovery procedure to get them back. So basically, as far as we know, IOTA stole money from its users and is now asking to verify their identity before they give it back to them. So where do we want to start with this one? Um, there's many different angles we could take, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, IOTA was developed, uh, I suppose, in response to the potential for concentration in the mining power of Bitcoin, which would, of course, lead to potentially less than competitive practices. And so shutting down some users' accounts in a central manner doesn't seem to be particularly competitive. It doesn't feel very decentralised, does it? It doesn't, no. So, I mean, as far as as far as I can tell, and again, this is, you know, based on uh, conversations with some of my colleagues today, it says, you know, for, for the Tangle or the blockchain uh, uh, you know, to become more secure, it has to grow. So you need more users on it. But how does it grow if A, the current system is insecure and B, IOTA keeps kicking people off it? No, I think it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I'm not I'm not an expert, but just sort of reading and obviously just hearing uh, through the news about, about such topics, alternative coins, is a lot how this tangle works. So I believe the way they speed it up and like using the use of Bitcoin is the sender initiates and can verify the transaction. So that is meant to speed up the transaction, but then there's also potentially this lack of kind of check and balance if the, if the sender's doing both. There's also potential just in this particular example where you have uh, them grabbing back, so to speak, the coins that if someone's actually accessed or hacked, or whatever the wording is, to get or if, if IOTA holders are at risk is potentially they've packed into the seed. And therefore, if you're going to ask them to verify their identity, how can, why wouldn't the hacker be the one trying to pretend to be that? person that originally held it if that makes sense and I think that's what's a bit bit of a contrary how do you actually prove that identity if the hacker's got the seed ultimately and I mean that's my understanding of it yeah it seems a bit of a contradiction of terms doesn't it if the seed's been compromised and has been hacked therefore how do you prove in the first place yeah how do you take this off chain so to speak although it's not not strictly speaking a chain is it no it's a tangle yeah it's a tangle it's a tangle it's a mess yeah yeah it's a directed graph and as you 
quite rightly pointed out, the sender will validate two extra transactions, so it's meant to speed up. And, you know, the idea is to have these micropayments in the world of the Internet of Things and machine-to-machine economy. Um, but it's not as tried and tested as we have with the, um, the sort of standardized crypto that's used in bitcoin and ethereum and the proof of work mechanism has proven to be pretty secure actually in the bitcoin blockchain to date and i mean it brings to my mind sort of questions around you know especially work sort of working at luno and we're very only sort of sell bitcoin and ethereum is why do we focus on those particular coins and it's you know is it fully decentralized uh, we have sort of a factor test and i'm not going to be prescriptive here but that's one of them how long has it been around it's not part of any pump and dump schemes um, is it secure in terms of its codes is it stood the test of time and so this it's not just a revenue play it's very much focused on are we going to be selling something that isn't suddenly going to happen like what's happened here with iota where customers are upset and another point here is and i guess it comes on to verifying identity to an extent is how do you onboard your customers um, so how do you do your potential KYC and you get relevant documents somewhat traditional but to be honest factual you need to know who that person is if you're on board them or you're selling coins to them for example and I think that's something we're very focused on as well to be able to if there is potentially something wrong or someone's something wrong with a particular account we're on it and we know how to verify that identity I mean certainly if you want to be seen as a legitimate business exactly. you, you have to do that I mean you I mean there are other there are other businesses in this space that um, make a point of being anonymous and make a point of keeping mm. everything anonymous. But, you know, as far as I can tell, IOTA isn't one of them. So if, if that's true, then... I mean, yeah. is that is that wrong? Are they? Are, I don't know. Yeah, it depends sure. on which markets you can buy IOTA, really, isn't it? It's the exchanges mm. that will be exactly. The KYC. Yeah. It's almost th- those points of sale or you know yeah. or buy is where you actually need to have that, and that's where you know we're very proud of doing that because it is about growing it in a sustainable way um, and in a secure way. Basically, yeah. I mean, if you self custody your own private keys, though and somebody compromises them, then there's no amount of KYC that can stop a bearer asset being sort of held by someone else. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, and I, I guess that is a good point, bringing on the point of sort of, is it custodial, is it non-custodial in terms of the wallet in particular? It's a bit like, do you trust yourself almost to store your, your private keys or the access to a majority of your wealth potentially under your mattress? I mean, or actually a, num- a ring of numbers that you could put on a piece of paper and lose. So it's about entrusting that. And then how does your counterparty, uh, another exchange, then store that? break it up in different vaults, make it ultra impossible to actually put it together any one person or any one entity to do that. And that's sort of about security uh, and so on, which is, again, very, very relevant for this example. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one that, uh, it is one that is, seems to be in the news quite a lot and not always for the for the best reasons. Speaking of, uh, our next story is from Coindesk.com. Block One wants to rewrite the entire EOS constitution. Oh, yes, we're back to EOS. So Block One, the core developers of EOS, have proposed the rules governing behaviour on the platform be scrapped and replaced with a version 2.0. So Dan Larimer, who created the cryptocurrency platform BitShares, proposed the referendum. He also criticised the EOS Core Arbitration Forum, or the ECAF, after they ordered that seven EOS addresses be frozen. Uh, I mean, I think, is this not backed? Is anything decentralised? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the same same themes, isn't it, really? Decentralization is quite an interesting one. I know you just brought it up on the uh, the story before, but there's kind of reminds me of the SEC's recent comments with Director Hinman gave a he gave the public speech about uh, Ethereum no longer being a security because it was sufficiently decentralized. I mean, I'm not really sure how we can quantify def- uh, sufficiently decentralized, but I suppose a, a foundation being able to freeze seven accounts for whatever reason is probably not sufficiently decentralized. 
I mean, yeah, and uh, if you say that it's completely decentralized, then what would be the point of one person or two people or three people being able to scrap the rules and coming up with some new ones? Like, that just sounds to me like that's a, cen- that's a central point of governance, therefore yeah. it's centralized. Yeah. I, 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 the question is, I think, kind of flipping on head, can anything realistically be decentralized if you want it to be working in an efficient way in terms of a system and governing a decentralized coin like bitcoin would there be you know pivots or issues or bugs where you then need a central authority to fix it and that would be a a controller to an extent for the user's safety so i think central elements would be relevant for 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 sort of risk management uh, but really obviously it's about actually freedom so actually people being able to use it as they wish in a obviously risk-free way and i think that's where decentralization is very key but obviously making sure no one is at risk ultimately and who who holds that that power in order to stop that yeah. uh, people being at risk is, is the question and yeah. is that a central power is that a community power essentially how can that be governed yeah, and we, we've seen this uh, pattern happen a few times before, haven't we? There's Coder's Law, actually, that's a very alluring proposition. But what about if there is a bug or if there's something like the DAO attack when uh, the community came to a consensus, inverted commas, and decided to actually kind of revert? Uh, and that ended up with a fork with two chains, effectively, two communities kind of parring against each other. And I think either way, I think we're very much at the sort of inception of whether it's blockchain technology or cryptocurrencies, but all these bring up questions, but also bring up innovation and bring up new business models and new ideas to actually then, to be honest, innovate further so we can potentially govern in a fully decentralized way, but in a way that keeps it in a risk averse way too. Mm, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's the last we're going to hear of EOS. I have a feeling we will be discussing them uh, at some point, probably in the near future. Yeah, so, this um, is not the first time they've run into trouble since launching the main net, actually, is it? The last couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're very, still very much in infancy themselves. And you need to set up a fully you know, decentralized global system. Is, is no, it's not trivial. Mm-hmm. It's not trivial. Let's not forget the $4 billion they raised over a year. But yeah, to be continued. So the next story um, is, is, I think, slightly controversial. Uh, it's from Bloomberg.com. Uh, and the headline is, Crypto Coin Tether defies logic on Kraken's market raising red flags. So what Bloomberg said was, and I'm being quite clear, that this is what Bloomberg said. Unlike the price of Bitcoin, which fluctuates in tandem with shifts in trading volume, the price of Tether is inconsistently changed by large and small orders to buy or sell the coin. So at Kraken, uh, which is a big cryptocurrency exchange, the third most common trade during the period Bloomberg examined was for uh, 13,076.389 tethers. That was behind 75 and 1,000. So the the fact that that was, you know, 75 and 1,000, you would kind of expect they're, they're reasonable numbers, round numbers that people might pick. This this particular, you know, this completely random 13,000, et cetera, et cetera, number was what raised some flags, apparently. And Bloomberg suggested that such numbers could be sing- signals to cheaters' automated trading programs. So one possible explanation is that the software would look for orders with a unique size and then trade against that. Taking both sides of a transaction is known as wash trading and it's banned in most regulated markets like stocks because it basically gives you a false impression of supply and demand. It's kind of the opposite of how markets should work. Kraken said, you know, nothing looks out of place to us. We, we don't know what you're talking about. Um, nothing to see here. Yeah. Um, the, the various people have come out on both sides here. There's a lot of he said, she said going on. There's a couple of points. One is I don't know that we would ever know that that's happening. I mean, maybe maybe Tether would, maybe, you know, Kraken would if they dug into it. Uh, but, I mean, I think the the key point here is the more that people like Bloomberg write articles like this, the more regulators are going to be like, oh, I see. 
What's going on over there? Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's the very good point is that we don't know because Tether haven't been able to find a, an auditor to actually give, a, you know, sign on the dotted line, a fully stamped piece of paper saying you do hold one-to-one pegged US dollar at a bank account with the number of US uh, USDT that are out there. Which is what they promised to do. That's, that's yeah, kind of their USP, I mean, isn't it? I, it's it's very hard to speculate on whether they just haven't done it or they can't find an auditor. I'd imagine in their defence it's probably quite difficult to find somebody that would put their name down and sign something that's as, as yet untested. There are a lot of murky stories that point to something that isn't potentially stabilising as, say, e-money issuers, for example, which are regulated entities that can tokenize US dollars or GBP or something. And, and there's actually a level of regulation there and consumer protection. So, I mean, one of the points... Uh potentially as sort of academics or economists looking at, at it and say, well, these big trades are not impacting prices. But, you know, there is a huge amount, and I believe Tether's one of them, stable coins, um, as you can call them. So they're pegged to a particular currency or a set of currencies. And then the way they kind of control, even if there's a huge supply, a supply or huge surge in demand, they control that equilibrium, but essentially, to my understanding, burning the difference. Now, that is essentially a fee or some sort of automation that helps and regulates that equilibrium. There's another stable coin um, actually to be launched um, the US basis. We actually didn't do any ICO, but kind of raise normal VC funding. Uh, and they are kind of making a stable coin by mimicking the Federal Reserve. So you would basically burn the supply or if you need to burn supply, you would sell debt or basis debt and they would buy it back uh, or bondholders would buy it back. And that's how you kind of control it, a bit like the Federal Reserve and burns the supply. So trying to mimic it without, without just burning supply and you're like, well, well hang on, where's that actual fee gone? Where's it, where's it sitting? So, you know, there's going to be an evolution more of stable coins, whether it work, whether it won't, we're not too sure. Yeah, um, basis either. is one of the ones actually, they've they've sort of implemented uh, climatic CEO Robert Sam's stable coin paper in 2014. <laughs> nice plan, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> well, it's true. They did. So uh, that remains to be tested. I think the supply and demand and, you know, expansion and contraction of a monetary supply is, is quite difficult for mm-hmm, sure. Absolutely. So, um, Especially when realistically, if we think about the grand scheme of the world and people who have access to value is pretty small, the people actually buying and holding these types yeah. of currencies. And it would also depend on, you know, when, when you start talking about that kind of currency, if you like, it becomes a different being. Mm. It becomes a different entity to a, what, I mean, this is what we, we talk about all the time. But every single crypto asset, if you like, that we talk about has is slightly different and isn't quite fitting neatly into any sort of box. So when we talk about that combined with regulation, no wonder everybody's got such a headache. Yeah, yeah. it's you know it is it is certainly a funny one, but there are uh, mechanisms out there already, such as e-money issuers, to to provide that one-to-one backing. And um, the thing that's slightly concerning about Tether is that unlike the e-money issuers or you know regulated issuers of currency, they do say in their uh, T's and C's, there is no contractual right or or other rights or legal claim against us to redeem or exchange your tethers for money. We do not guarantee any right of redemption or exchange of tethers by us for money. So kind of like when they uh, <laughs> you still away with the gold standard. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I never brought it back. No. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, I think your point also in terms of a headline, it you know it does you know red flags ring some bells and to be honest misinforms and i think you know that's really important for any any stakeholders in the industry is to kind of educate but also kind of unravel those misconceptions as yeah well. i mean there'd be certainly contagion risk in all of the uh, exchanges that do um 
buy and sell tether for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure there are, that somebody has explained it both sides of that argument in more detail out there. But as, as I say, I think the major point for us right now is the more we see this kind of thing in the mainstream press, the more it doesn't matter how accurate it is or not, the more people are going to be raising eyebrows. So our next story is actually uh, from uh, Solaris Bank themselves, and it's that Solaris Bank has launched a blockchain factory, uh, becoming a banking partner for the cryptocurrency and blockchain industry. So Simon Taylor actually caught up with Peter Grosskopf, the CTO of Solaris Bank, to talk through the announcement. So for those who don't know, Solaris Bank is basically a banking as a service provider. So historically, what they've done is let other businesses use their license in order to issue financial services products. And what they're now doing is extending that to cryptocurrency and blockchain businesses. Um, One of the key things they are doing is providing those businesses with actual bank accounts, because as we know, some of the major banks have not been overly keen on issuing uh, crypto currency companies with business bank accounts and then you know moving on from that they they plan to just become an infrastructure partner basically for cryptocurrency and blockchain companies let's hear from peter and see what he has to say here on Blockchain Insider today, I'm joined by Peter from Solaris Bank. Peter, how are you, sir? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for so much for being with us. Do you want to just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and who Solaris Bank is, please? Well, Solaris Bank is known as a banking platform that was founded three years ago from now. And uh, the, the core idea was to to have, on the one hand, a regulated bank. So, so we applied for a banking license and received it two and a half years ago. And on the other and also provide a API platform. So for example, account openings, KYC processes, accounts, uh, escrow cards, and, and different things, and offer those to fintech companies. We did pretty well. So it's uh, over 60 fintechs and uh, also other digital companies and also nowadays banks using us and, and our APIs. And uh, nowadays we're looking quite closely to the, to the crypto universe because we see that they have the same problems that the fintechs had a couple of years before, that they need to have a regulated partner. And that's what we're now doing. So when you say regulated partner, I think it's really interesting that you guys have a bank account and you've been providing services, effectively allowing other people to use you guys as a bank as if they were a bank themselves through APIs. So fundamentally, what's the product offering called that you guys have announced for the crypto space? So for the for the crypto space, we actually took a step back also from our initial plans because our initial plan was to to offer a kind of a full uh, also infrastructure platform for, for, for crypto companies, for example, containing wallets and so on. But we figured out that uh, the biggest pain point that, that most players in the market have at the moment is that they just need a banking partner. And uh, so, for example, to run their own operations on a bank account, like paying salaries and so on. And, uh, and the other aspect is also to get feared into the, into the crypto ecosystem, like through pooling accounts uh, and, and products like that. Um, and as we have the banking license, as we are able to provide products like that, we decided that we're going to focus on this one. And the second thing that uh, that we also do at the moment, um, not live, but that we are working on, is that we that we can provide uh, also license construction 
governance around uh, crypto company startups so that the, the crypto companies don't need to run for their own license. Do you offer them bank accounts directly or do you offer them the ability to become a bank and give themselves a bank account? So it, it really depends on the on the model of collaboration that um, that the that the crypto company is um, is, is dealing with us. Um, so it, it can be, for example, in the yeah in the example of the pooling account, let's say typical relationship with us. So the the companies integrate with our APIs and uh, can use our escrow account for for pooling funds and uh, kind of build a bridge between the crypto and the, and the fiat ecosystem. And um, and they can also get that bank account, including the the payments license or like the e money license, if they don't have to have their own one. So this is uh, this is the, the one relationship. And uh, for the for the operational account, we will also also provide uh, kind of a, a slim uh, entry point, so that um, you don't need to build your own your own front end. It's interesting. I'm, I'm guessing in order to get this approved, you've had to go through your own internal approvals and have conversations with regulators. Famously, your banking licenses in Germany. Uh, Germany, of course, the regulator is BaFin, who are known as being one of the more conservative regulators out there. Uh, how do you think that this affects your risk profile? Uh, and do do you think people really know that you know that they can get a bank account from effectively a German bank that has got a bunch of APIs that are easy to integrate? Um, I think this is exactly. The, 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 the nice thing about it so because if you if you if you think about um, if you can get a bank account from from a German bank this this sounds pretty safe right and uh, so you, you were talking about the German regulator and of course as we are in, in close uh, relationship with them and we have many meetings many like recurring scheduled meetings with them anyway um, to, to to keep the relationship um, and they visit us quite often here so we also use these uh, these recurring meetings to to, to discuss with them um, about our plans and our future plans so I, I brought that that example of the fintech companies a couple of years back when we were also in discussion with with the BaFin kind of also saw that opportunity in having kind of a regulated institute that that helps to to regulate the fintech companies so there is now the opportunity that we can do the same also for the crypto space Peter this sounds very exciting where can people find out more about Solaris Bank and your product offering so we also published a, a subpage on our main webpage so it's solarisbank.de so you you can uh, you can find in the top level navigation so the link to the blockchain factory so which is the unit that is taking taking all the um, all the also all the, all the focus on building products for the for the for the blockchain space. There's a there's a contact form, so you get can get in contact through this, or you you can also write me directly through LinkedIn or through Twitter. I think you can find me in, on almost any channel. Peter, thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider. Yeah, thank you. So our next story today comes from City AM. Uh, the Bank of England has apparently warned on cryptocurrency risks again. Uh, I added the again. Uh, so basically, Sam Woods, who's the head of the Prudential Regulatory Authority, wrote this letter and basically said, I'm writing to the CEOs of banks, insurance companies and designated investment funds to remind them of the relevant obligations under PRA rules and to communicate the PRA's expectations regarding firms' exposure to crypto assets. So basically, he recommended that firms recognise that crypto assets represent a new and evolving asset class with risks which should be considered fully by the board and the highest levels of executive management. Basically, guys, keep your noses clean. Well, it's, it's an 
interesting one, actually, because although that's obviously very prudent, clues in the name, we're getting slightly mixed signals, I think, from UK at the moment. I was uh, at one of the all-party parliamentary groups on Monday, being asked to give an industry update on behalf of Climatics to the fintech group. And it was a great discussion. There was probably about 40 people in the room, a lot of them from crypto industries, and discussing what problems they were facing to try and run a business, to try and sort of foster innovation. And of course, there was there's striking the balance between protecting consumers and, and fostering innovation. There's also the all-party parliamentary group on um, blockchain, specifically in cryptocurrency. So, and I've seen from these groups, actually, a real drive forward to, towards fostering innovation. Obviously, you know, there's the downside of these risks, but it just comes back to the regulation that already stands within the FCA that, you know, buyer beware and it has to be uh, regulated in the way that it should be regulated. But otherwise, it's the freedom for innovation, really. That's Yeah, but I think the point here, from my perspective, is that the PRA regulates, um, you know, investment firms, insurers. Now, these are people who might be putting their clients' money into crypto assets that is a you know I think that is kind of well to me that's what he's getting at here he's like you're running somebody's pension you really shouldn't be doing you know putting your money in this kind of fund guys so it's yeah and I I agree with that um and that's potentially because there has been that talk um inside and sort of outside rooms general public about institutions potentially banks um actually set up trading desks especially on bitcoin but I think it also sort of brings up a bit of a contrary opinion which is we understand that it's high risk like many assets are we understand this is an unregulated risk so slightly obviously more risky than a regulated one however that's not to say that you know regulation is still not needed therefore on these potential crypto asset investments so if they flag that it's risky like in any investment but it's also risky because it's unregulated well let's talk like you're saying a lot of these sort of government bodies or the uk treasury committee who uh, particularly been giving sort of talking to crypto uh, uh, platforms uh, crypto uk in particular being one of them sort of leading the group that obviously we know of and that's something that i think is is needed to say well okay that is there is that disparity there is that obvious risk but let, let's come together and let's talk about how do you regulate that risk for people, potentially insurers, investment firms, or just general individuals to be willing to then take that risk if it's regulated. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, I think, you know, I, I'm going to, you know, I don't often take the regulator, and I do take the regulator side, in all fairness, that's a stupid thing to say, Sarah. You know, the, the, the two things is, one is that honestly, you don't want to hear about how much I love RegTech. He says that, you know, first of all, we just want you to tell us if you're doing it. So we expect you to inform us if you do have any planned crypto asset exposure. So not don't do it, just make sure you tell us. And then finishes the letter with discussions are ongoing. We are, aware, you know, uh, including amongst authorities internationally on the prudential treatment of crypto assets. You know, we will communicate any supervisory, supervisory, sorry, or policy updates on the prudential treatment of crypto assets in due course. And I think, yeah, I, I agree with you. And actually, because you've noted here, it's the Bank of England. Um, Bank of England have actually done and continue to do many studies on digital currencies. Mm. And if the UK or the British government were to issue a digital coin, what would the impact be on the economy? They've even got an, an email, uh, which is digital currencies team at Bank of England. So it's not like it's something it's new and it's not foreign to them. It's been an academic subject for economists to analyse. And I think that it's good that now it's been opened to the mainstream in a way. So let's bring that academic research, the learnings of people and players in the industry together uh, to yeah. actually build something sustainable for the future. For sure. And I think it's uh, to bring up a point that you made 
as well it's 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 partly global it's very difficult to regulate something in one jurisdiction that's naturally global by design mm-hmm. um, and there's uh, Simon Taylor's global digital finance that's absolutely you know, nicely like done in, in his absence uh, but you know there were representatives from there at the roundtable discussion on Monday and it's incredibly important to actually have these discussions and, and come to some conclusion of what is specifically what is not safe and what is risky and what will actually harm the consumer for sure and then there's also jurisdictional nuance yeah well, well talking yeah. of you know jurisdictional nuance um the next story is actually from bloomberg again and it's that the bis signals cryptocurrency should be regulated like securities so <laughs> this is another regulator taking a slightly different stance so you know basically on the same subject the bank for international settlements their, their economic advisor and head of research said that many cryptocurrencies should be considered the same as stocks and bonds on the basis that the majority held for the purposes of financial gain rather than uh, presumably as mediums of exchange. He said, if people pay to hold the tokens for financial gain, then arguably they should be treated as, as a security and come under the same rigorous documentation requirements and regulation as other securities offered to investors for a return. I mean, mm. they do they do manage to make it sound so wonderfully simple, don't yeah. they? Well, let's I mean, just treat them as securities, the ones <laughs> people hold to make money on. Yeah, uh, right? how are they going to determine that? Um, where does that leave other uh, people make tangible... Money on, Sarah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you don't make money on it, then it's not, not a security. security. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that, I mean, you can offset it as part of your um, Tax loss. Return. Yeah. But it's an interesting analogy to things like art. If you were to buy and hold art for financial return, does that make it then a security? True. Or stamps. Or stamps. <laughs> wine. We can keep going. Wine. Yeah, wine. Let's stop there. How do they determine that? And again, it comes back to the same jurisdictional consistency that we need to see. And we've had CFTC def- define Bitcoin as a commodity, presumably so that they could... Um, you know, do some futures contracts on it. Uh, Ethereum, said by the SEC, is not a security anymore. But we don't have that kind of same framework in the UK. And of course, the Howie test is not applicable here. It's not tested law in the UK. So where where does that leave everything? But from, um, you know, in, in Germany, I believe cryptocurrencies, or at least Bitcoin, is determined as a security, um, which then obviously for any sort of cryptocurrency platform means you have to certain regulation, work with BaFin, etc. Again, it's what do we need to do and then you actually need to go do it. But it's deemed a security, uh, which is okay. But, you know, we haven't had that universal understanding across Europe, let alone the world. And we need to sort of understand, if it, is it because it's liquid, it's deemed a security? Is it because you have a potential return on that investment or potential loss? Is that the reason? Is it because actually people could hold Hold-all. and actually... Yeah, hodl it or hodl equals is there going to be a point where you hold Bitcoin, I hold Bitcoin, we actually think it's a good medium of exchange, we need exchange value for it. Is that a security or is actually that a representation of a currency? So I think it's how these coins uh, or you know, say take Bitcoin for example is adopted and how then is it used um, as it grows and as that net- network effect happens, how is it then basically treated? What's the use case potentially? Then we'll determine actually is it security? I, I mean, I think that joyfully for me, we're going to be talking about regulation for quite a while to come. <laughs> um, I think that this is one of those... Uh, one of those uh, areas which is not going to settle itself out uh, nicely and cleanly. I mean, ultimately, I think a lot of these talking points that we've kind of run through, it leads back to education and education for these stakeholders, for these um, regulators, for these banks, for anyone reviewing the sector, uh, such as the Bank of England. What is it that we're understanding here? And I think there's going to be, there is a big gap between just tech, let alone fintech, let alone digital currencies. It's, It's a whole new education point that we, as people working in the industry, 
would have to come to the table and sort of educate as well. Yeah, yeah. I would say the Bank of England are um, doing a very good job, as you mentioned. Yes, the, absolutely. Uh, Centre for Cryptocurrencies and all the economic research they're doing. Exactly. They did POCs it's needed. this summer for integrating RTGS. Absolutely. I, mean, I, I think participated in. generally speaking, we're finding the willingness on both both sides. Yes. Yeah. It's just that we have to accept it will take time. Exactly. Nothing. Nothing with to do with international totally regulation agree. will move quickly. No, you know, there's, sure, there's a lot. Sure. There's a lot of stuff on the agenda going on in the world. So you're right. It's on there. It's just going to take time. So moving on from regulation, our next story is from Finextra, and the story is that Line will launch a cryptocurrency exchange. So Line is a Japanese uh, messaging app, but it also, like WeChat in China, does payments, uh, P2P payments, that kind of thing. So apparently, Line will establish a cryptocurrency exchange dubbed Bitbox. The CEO of Line said that with Bitbox, Line users will be able to access cryptocurrencies more easily whilst also being assured of state-of-the-art security measures to protect their assets. The caveat here is that, um, so Line is a Japanese messaging app. It has a huge number of users. It has about 145 million month, uh, active users. That said, apparently the cryptocurrency exchange, which will open for business next month, will be based in Singapore, serving a global marketplace barring Japan and the US, where the regulatory difficulties and safeguarding procedures have stalled the development of new exchanges. Hmm, I wonder how many uh, users they have outside of the Japanese market. Mm. Yeah, I mean, well, they're going, they're starting from Singapore, which suggests, you know, they've got a reasonable base there. Also, Singapore up. There's five million open. people in Singapore, isn't there? Yeah, no, sorry. I mean, I mean, they must have a they must have a reasonable kind of uh, market start, share. Market share. Five million, yeah. oh, oh, connection is a good base to kind of get into the rest of Asia, and you know, it is as you just said, it's quite open in terms of its knowledge or receptiveness. Yeah, I mean, the regulators there want innovation. Uh, they want fintech innovation. Um, so I imagine that they have given this the go ahead. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know where Lines users are. I mean, my concern with any of these things, and I voiced it before, is it doesn't really matter where it is if it is primarily a messaging app that is used by a wide variety of people to, you know, there's a big difference between me paying you £5 back for lunch and allowing me to invest in crypto assets. Mm. I I do, I actually have concerns when people say we'll make it easier and I'm always like, should it be that easy? I mean, there's making it easier and then there's like, putting it into WhatsApp. It's only crypto to crypto, very much like Binance is, so you have no fiat on-off ramp, so potentially um, precludes the problem of uh, US dollar or Japanese yen on-off ramp, which might prove problematic. Um, I think the question of ease also comes in just the user experience. We don't want to make it easy for any, you know, anyone to join. But of course, you make it easy that if you have joined, you've gone through the thorough procedures, it is easy to therefore use. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a concept that you have to use in any product to make it easy. And I think, you know, as I said, this is a Japanese company. Uh, they're, they're obviously very innovative and, and aware that around cryptocurrencies because of, you know, J- Japan almost talking and adopting it and, and spreading it as, as a currency, I think, believe officially in Japan. So it's something where they're trying to take that that knowledge and that awareness into I guess the rest of Asia yeah um, for and I'm sure. sure they have a reputation outside of Japan it's just where that yeah. where, where it sits basically. it must be it must be I think they're launching this in 15 languages as well so there we go <laughs> might come over here <laughs> yeah I mean it, I think it's I think it's one of those things that you know whatever the technical um, aspect of it is and wherever it is offered and you know whether you what coins it offers are, are sort of as I said to me slightly irrelevant I don't want you know 13 year olds who use WhatsApp to be able to buy cryptocurrencies it's, it's kind of the their same. pocket money well it's kind 0.1% trading fee, so... But but then, but then doesn't it become, to me, the instant analogy in my head is, like, all those kids who play those, like... I'm going to sound so old here. These computer games, and then spend all their parents' money, like online buying in-game add-ons. Like, oh, do you yeah. see what I mean? Yeah. It's I, mean I think it's like, you're right, and I mean, kind of... 
you know, we'll potentially talk about other other potential information apps. But essentially, it is you're an information company, you're a messaging app, you're not a kind of financial service institution or Mm. any money institution or the equivalent um, or just you know payments whatever it may be you're not handling money therefore you haven't inherently got those checks inherently got that framework or that product or that general cultural awareness when you're onboarding people or talking to your customers around dealing with people's money yeah and i think that's a big different trust element that you need with your customers you're alluding to than like I'm sending a message to, I'm sending that person money. There's a different trust. You have that interaction with that app that you're using. Yeah, and I think there's financial services companies, whether it's advisory or, or actually taking deposits, but they've built up a wealth of knowledge and understanding about why the regulations are there and how they want to protect their consumers, whereas messaging, as you say, just doesn't necessarily have that that history of knowledge. And I, and I think people forget when they go, oh, well, WeChat's doing it in China, that WeChat is such mm. a different beast. You know, almost all of their financial services products are backed by legacy financial institutions they're filling gaps that didn't exist previously absolutely it's not you can't just add you know cryptocurrency trading to whatsapp and it'd it be the same as wechat it, yeah. or, you know it's just the same way that you couldn't start to offer insurance through wechat or yeah. you know it's a bit like in so africa and even parts of sort of asia uh, where you have these sort of money wallets basically you top up by text you use potentially the the um you know, phone networks there that help facilitate that. You buy airtime, then that airtime can actually be going into currency and you exchange. That is how they pay their bills, potentially education, potentially utilities in the house. So it's it's something where it's become a norm to use a messaging or a phone network to then facilitate payment. But that's because it's needed. There has been an, a gap in terms of accessing a, an account or a way of paying. And the stakeholders are accepting that form of payment already. So it is a normal mo- means on both sides of the table, whereas this is a, a quite a big pivot. Yeah, mm. it is. Yeah, I mean, that's one that I'm certainly going to be watching quite closely to see how that mm. plays out. See if they tow the line, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> if not, I'll get my reg tech buddies on it. <laughs> so our final story today is from bitcoinexchangeguide.com um, and basically the, the the headline is quite long uh, and it says new crypto rumours report suggests that Facebook is going to buy Coinbase. This is not a new rumour actually. No. We have been hearing this for You're quite right. a while. Yeah. Well, you know, back when Facebook said that they were, didn't they say they were developing a cryptocurrency team or, or a blockchain team mm. and everybody freaked out and it was yeah. five people. Uh, <laughs> there was a management reshuffle in the company and there was a launch of the division which was exploring blockchain technology mm. and reporting directly to the CTO and I think it was David Marcus and he was the yeah. head of Facebook Messenger which actually is quite a nice link yeah. to the, the article we were discussing before I mean the um, and I believe also sits on the board of Coinbase if I'm correct that's right yeah. yep so I mean, so there's an obvious potential. Well, was was there. there are many links there. You know, there's, there's absolutely the one you mentioned, Maya. And then there's the, um, apparently, the reason that this has picked up speed this week, if you like, is because uh, Facebook issued a statement um, yep. talking about lifting uh they had they had banned advertisements for ICOs and cryptocurrencies on Facebook, and they talked about uh, in a statement potentially they're going to lift it. Uh, so they said, you know, in the last few months we've looked at the best way to refine this policy to allow some ads whilst also working to ensure that they're safe. Um, so starting on the June twenty sixth, which was um, a couple of weeks ago, they have updated their policy to allow ads that promote cryptocurrency and related content from pre-approved advertisers. I would love to know if those pre-approved advertisers is just Coinbase actually. <laughs> yes. well, yeah, there is. 
of one. creating a, a white list. So essentially, you're the good guys and we're going to put you on it. Um, and that's going to be a process. But I think, you know, Facebook have always tried to be a payments app. It's not the first time, especially Facebook Messenger. So it's not the first time, but it comes back to a point that we've just mentioned. They're an information product and they always have been. How are they suddenly going to redevelop a, a way of vetting people and people going to trust to do it? And how are you going to track it? I mean, it's a whole plethora of things. Not to say they don't have the funds and they don't have the right management team potentially coming in. But then it's also, well, you know, isn't everyone who has potentially the funds, a company like Facebook, investing and looking at blockchain technology? It's almost become, it's a norm. We've got to keep ahead of the curve. We've got to be innovative. We have the funds. Let's create some sort of group or team that actually focuses on that. doesn't mean you're going to jump on it today or suddenly buy one of the biggest, uh, you know, exchanges, etc. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's something that it will preclude them. But I don't think it's going to be imminent. It's, It's just a development. And I think a lot of companies are following them that direction. Yeah, I mean, to pick up on something you just said there about trust, I don't know how many times you've noticed uh, adverts on bus stations so saying, many. yeah, fake news is not our friend from Facebook. So Facebook have been doing their own uh, advertising yeah. and absolutely trying to clean up. Big double yep, page spread. Yep, yep, yeah, exactly. So they're, you know, they've been murdered in scandal quite recently for fake news and not that advertising a, a legitimate crypto exchange obviously is, is fake news. I'm not trying to say that. However, as we have discussed in the rest of this podcast and as multiple discussions have been had, this isn't defined globally. There's not a taxonomy for crypto mm. assets. There's not any consistent regulation. There's different jurisdictional responses to all of this. There's potentially no age checks at some of these Absolutely. regulated things. What if that's something? What if they... What if, what if, what if, yeah. obviously this is just a rumour, but there's, there's, there's a lot that I think maybe that now is not the right time mm. to start reintroducing ads for crypto. Yeah, I mean, I mean obviously there's, there's two parts of the story. There's, there's the ads and then there's the, the rumour itself. I mean, like, it feels to me slightly unlikely that it would happen anytime soon that Facebook would purchase Coinbase. Not that, as you said, I don't really have the funds or the, you know, probably the desire to do so. Mm. But as you just said as well, to me, the ad point ties into them. Actually, they're focused on cleaning up house. So yep. why would they then go into this huge acquisition? It's not quite like buying WhatsApp where it ties into something they already do. So exactly. WhatsApp is a messaging platform. Exactly. Facebook has a messaging platform. Mm platform all right I can see the synergy there you know Facebook people just post pictures on Facebook Facebook buys Instagram again okay that is all to me quite logical the Coinbase one feels like such a jarring move unless you know unless it's an investment (laughs) unless they're buying it to leave as is to run which is possible Mm. um it strikes me as a bit a bit like it would alert too many people to an area, you know, that the regulators would just fly out of their seats. Or maybe they have so much data they can start target advertising people from HMRC. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the opposite is, does Coinbase want to be acquired by Facebook? I mean, that's the other yeah. question. I mean, would they rather IPO? Would they rather wait? I mean, there's a lot of questions you can say. I mean, I know Snapchat resisted, I believe, Facebook's acquisition, and then I don't believe got such a good offer on their IPO, <laughs> essentially, but... So it's it's a question for ultimately the person or the company rather being acquired. Is this what they want to do? So it's not just a one way uh, sort of focus, uh, but it's interesting potentially uh, the way Facebook is acquiring or hiring uh, the type of people to look at blockchain or potentially crypto. Anyone know what Facebook's share price has done since that news was leaked? Potentially gone up? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. We should have put that <laughs> we up. We should check. Um, yeah, I mean, so that is a really it's a really interesting story. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of meat in there. Um, but again, we can't really do anything until we know whether it's true or not. Yeah. So with that, we will have to move on to stories we did not have time to cover. So Coindesk.com had a story which was China's crypto ratings index puts EOS in top slot and drops Bitcoin. It's deep 
intake of breath there all around. There's a gift for that. Um, Wired had a story uh, that said blockchain was always a religion and now it's got its own church. Nobody is surprised by that. Cointelegraph had a story which was exclusive. Binance set to launch its first crypto fiat exchange in Uganda. Interesting move. Um, And another story from Coindesk, which was a $700 million cryptocurrency called Ontology uh, is about to go live. So that's one to watch out for. So now on to our tweet of the week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the tweet of the week. So this week's tweet of the week comes from at Matt D. Lockyer, and it reads, I personally am willing to publicly say that I find current accredited investor rules of many countries which allow only millionaires to invest in securities very unfair and plutocratic. Uh, And he was quoting uh, Vitalik Buterin there. I mean, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) you could essentially say that pretty much underpins the rise of cryptocurrencies in a way. Um, It's a way for people to access wealth that they don't normally do every day apart from potentially buying a property if, if you can lucky to do that so it, it's a way for you to grow your wealth beyond your general income every month uh, and that's pretty much where it's also in your power it's you it's you the individual not your bank yeah. it's you accessing it pretty much sums up you know what we've seen <laughs> generally I, yeah I mean I, I think there are an awful lot of ways it was interesting there's two points to me one is that as far as I know that we don't have that strong accredited investor rules in the UK it's not that difficult to to open an a stocks and shares ISA which is investing. True. Uh, whereas in the US, you know, and it's not that difficult to go on to Crowdcube yeah, and crowdfunding. invest. Crowdfunding is Very incredibly different. accessible. Whereas in the US, you have to be an accredited investor. Each state as well has a different... Yeah, and that actually, if you look at some of those rules, I've looked them up before, it's something like you have to have $100,000 in liquid assets and a million dollars worth of assets overall. And, you know, yeah, okay, in that case, yes, that's very restrictive. And I completely agree uh, with that. I think that there is a lot of other places where it's not quite as bad. Um, True, but having said that, I mean, now obviously banks are innovating with their own apps and way of creating value and accessing stocks and shares. But there is still a very high minimum threshold. I believe one of them that I read, um, I believe it's UBS, it was £15,000. So it's a minimum threshold that is also not necessarily a norm for most people to access on a mass scale. Yeah, I think we should be wary of of looking at the fact that, you know, given we are on blockchain inside of that, uh, thinking cryptocurrency is the only way to invest if you have much money. Absolutely, no. And there are, you know, the likes of, there are the likes of Wealthify out there which will let you put £100 into a portfolio and see what happens. And that is still investing. And and Crowdkey will let you put whatever you like in. That said, you know, if, Vitalik is the man to get the US to sort their uh, their rules out or at least just you know have one set of rules for every state um, then that would be <laughs> some- No absolutely there's no guarantee and definitely no guarantee in crypto assets in terms of investing I think it's more the accessibility to it and people yeah. have to take their own risk and judge their own risk appetite and where they are personally financially to take that risk and I think that's ultimately the question for any asset especially the riskier ones of course And it goes, it goes back to education it goes exactly. back to making sure you know exactly. every investment has you know don't invest more than you can afford exactly. to lose in cryptocurrencies are no different. Yeah, capital at your, at your own risk, no. etc. Yeah, um, For all those apps, absolutely. Just before we go, 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger agency who help banks, asset managers, FMIs and anyone with a challenge in blockchain or DLT to achieve more. If you want to understand how to commercialise blockchain projects or just have a speaker for your next event, we hope that you'll get in touch. Please hit up our website at 11FS.com to find out more. Uh, so where can people find out more about you, Sarah? Do you perhaps have a Twitter handle you'd like to people I to know about? I do, yeah. You can find me tagged in almost every one of B-Chain Insider's tweets at Seronimo. 
Sorry about that. No, not a problem. <laughs> you can also find, you can tweet us at Clearmatics or go to Clearmatics.com or github.com forward slash Clearmatics. And how about you, Maya? Yeah, absolutely. On Twitter, it's at Luno Money. And on Facebook, it's Luno GB. Uh, those are kind of the most active social channels. And of course, come to our live chat where you can ask us live agents questions at any time and learn more. Perfect. Thank you so much. So I also have to thank our amazing production team here at 11FS, Laura Watkins, our producer, Holly Blacksill, our editor, and our assistant producer, Petrick Barisha. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews do help us so, so much. Please spread the word. Tell all your friends and colleagues to listen to. We will have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye. <laughs>